Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Lunch Therapy. I'm your host, unlicensed lunch therapist, Adam Roberts. My guest this week is a friend, Ben Mandelker, who co-hosts one of the most popular podcasts on iTunes. It's called Watch What Crappens. It gets almost 2 million or over 2 million listeners a month. And they do five episodes a week where they dissect nearly everything that happens on Bravo. So in today's episode, I talked to Ben about the toll that watching all of this Bravo takes on him. There's something about like the the process of like just watching so much TV and then going on and on about so much TV and then you eat some McDonald's that you kind of feel like, what sort of human am I? <laughs> you know, <laughs> feeling qualified to cook. If I don't feel like I have authority in something, I tend to shy away from it until I do have the authority. And the foods that he still refuses to eat. The the one thing I have never been able to rid myself of from childhood is that I have an extreme hatred for berries and stone fruit. So without further ado, here is my lunch therapy session with Ben Mandelker. Well, Ben, thank you so much for coming on Lunch Therapy. Oh my God, I am so excited to be here. I, you know, I'm like such a fan of your content, Adam. Oh, stop. <laughs> your, your Instagram is like always inspiring me. Your Twitter oh. is so funny. So like, I'm like very, very excited to be here. Well, I mean, you're the superstar podcaster who has one of the top, if not the top podcast right now in the art section of Apple Podcasts. That's pretty incredible. Congratulations. Thank you very much. It's like, it's, uh, we we're not that we're not the top at the very moment, but like every now and then you sort of like get up there and it's, it's very very, very surreal to yes. me that that our show, which is just basically commenting on stuff happening on Bravo, that that would somehow, you know, propel us to such great heights. But it has. And we're not complaining, of course. But I didn't realize because I've listened to it. But like I went and checked it out before you came on. And I didn't realize you guys do it every day, like five days a week. <laughs> that is so much. Are you exhausted or is it still fun for you? Um, oh, it's always still fun. Uh, sometimes it can be exhausting because our re- we record. Sometimes if we can do multiple episodes on the same day, mm-hmm. um, then we will do it that way. Like if we have access to screeners or or things like that. So on Mondays, we actually wind up recording three episodes in a row. And wow. It's really intense. Like, yeah. I mean, you know, as a podcaster, just to talk for an hour is hard. Yeah, and I do us- one a week and it's like, <laughs> wow, how do I do this? I'm, I'm like a hero, but five a week, I can't imagine. You are a hero. You <laughs> yeah. are. <laughs> but you're also, not only are you recording podcasts, though, you're keeping up on every Bravo show. That's the other part of it, right? Yeah, almost every Bravo show. There are some that we just don't have the bandwidth for. So like the million dollar listings, unfortunately, we just do not cover them. Yeah. Uh, we had to, we also, we also had to cut loose some shows like Married to Medicine. And, you know, it's like, we want to cover them all, but Bravo also just keeps churning out so much content. And eventually we just kind of have to, you know, cry uncle and, and just pick <laughs> the ones that we want to watch. Well, I love hearing you guys do your impressions of all the housewives too. I mean, I'm I'm an original like New York Housewives fan. Yes. I mean, Jill Zarin was my housewife uh, that felt like I felt the most connected to because I was like, okay, mm-hmm. she's like a Jewish mother. Like, and yeah. funny, funny enough, I found out later that she lives in Florida, like in the same community that my parents live in. So, um, so it's like very close to home. But then she was exiled from the housewives, you know, uh, lineup, and and I was very upset yeah. about that. How do you yeah. feel about that? Um, I think it's time for Jill Zarin to come back. I really do. Um, I do you know, too. She was beloved. Her first two seasons, people loved her. She was like a top ranked housewife overall. And then her feud with Bethany kind of exposed some of the darker sides of Jill Zarin. Sure. Which I think at the time people were like, how craven, how awful. But now, you know, you know, in you know, we've had many years since then, and the dark sides of Jill Zarin really are not as terrible as some other dark sides we've seen on other housewives who've lasted oh my God, a lot I find than. Bethany's dark side so much darker. I mean, I like Bethany and I admire yes. her, but she goes so dark that she'll be like sobbing at the dinner table because someone like dropped a napkin on her lap or something. I mean, it's just like there's yeah. a dark darkness there that goes beyond anything I've ever seen. Yeah, and I would argue that in retrospect, um, you know, we were all kind of like team Bethany at the time because everyone loved Bethany. And like you said, I still really like Bethany. I think mm-hmm. that she is 
a challenging personality, but I think she's also kind of a, a gaping wound. And I think that's yeah. good for reality TV. But oh, yeah. in retrospect, you know, Jill's whole thing was that her husband had cancer. RIP Bobby, her husband had cancer and Bethany like sent an email and that was it. <laughs> and you know what? In retrospect, it's like, that was a totally valid reason. To <laughs> Bethany. I'm sorry. Yeah. That was a totally valid reason. I have to say the darkest moment on that whole franchise to me was when it was Bobby's funeral and Jill mm. came out to see Bethany on the street at her husband's funeral. She got like mic'd up to have like yeah. a reconciliation with Bethany. I felt, I found that extraordinarily dark. I don't know why. Although <laughs> Bobby would have approved, I think. And I, I don't remember the exact quote, but I just seem to remember that like, it seemed almost like Bethany was one upping Jill in that moment. Yeah. I, I seem to remember there was some quote where, where Beth, I thought to myself, is Bethany <laughs> really doing this at the funeral? This is very strange. <laughs> Well, we're going to give you a break from talking about housewives, but I had to cover some housewife ground before That's we okay. got. I'll, I'll talk as much as you want. Like I'm, <laughs> like I'm. I, it's like now part of my instinct. It's like if you if you need me to talk housewives, I will talk housewives for hours. Well, it is funny though. I will say, and then I'll we'll move on. But I, I, Craig was like, "Are there any Jewish housewives right now in New York?" And it's like Leah is converting to Judaism. Yeah, but otherwise, I don't think there are, and I find that crazy because I mean, New York, you have to have at least one Jewish housewife. Yeah. Well, you know, you know. uh, Real Housewives, I feel like when it started and probably is still sort of true is that every city was kind of like a stereotype, mm -hmm. right? Or or maybe not a stereotype. It was sort of like a like a, a group. So you had, you know, blondes in Orange County. You Atlanta was primarily black. New York, Jewish, New Jersey, Italian. It was like yeah. very on the nose. But you're right. New York has kind of moved away from it. Although I think this season with like Black Shabbat, I think <laughs> <laughs> I missed that. I need to watch that. Okay, oh, Black Shabbat, you know, Black Shabbat got a lot of people really mad, but I think we're going to be talking about Black Shabbat for a very long time. Like Black Shabbat <laughs> was just something where you're like, I cannot believe what I'm watching right here. Really? Okay. I'll go back. I'll watch that. So yeah, Ben, when prepared. I first um, met you, I believe I, maybe I met you out in the world, but one of our first social gatherings together as friends was you brought me to a cookbook sale at the Hollywood farmer's market. Do you remember that? Oh yeah, we totally did that. We had brunch afterwards. Yes, we did. And so I want to hear about, which I'm sure you're eager to talk about your relationship to food and, mm. and your history with it and how much you care about it. Cause it's not something maybe that comes up often on your podcast, as far as I know, but maybe yeah, people want we, to know about it. Yeah. We actually do talk about food because Ronnie, my co-host, uh, we, we both love to cook, Okay, but um, in terms of my history with food, I, I have a strange history with food in that as a child, I'm like, <laughs> you want, here comes the whole history. Yeah. Let's hear it. Um, as a child, I was a very picky eater, you know, a standard kid stuff, right? Hot dogs. Yeah. Yes, vegetables, no. Mm -hmm. And, you know, somewhere around like fifth or sixth grade, I started to explore more, started to incorporate shrimp, being open to shrimp, okay. being open to salad. I remember salad was a big thing around sixth grade for me. You know, I would like just douse it with Thousand Island. And where did you grow up? New York. I actually, New York. Drew, yeah, Westchester, New York. Okay. I'm so, from Long Island. So we're right, not too far. Yeah, okay. Across the, the sound. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the body of water. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, I think I had like a fairly standard relationship with food. Um, and I, I just started to become more and more open to it through college. Um, be more, like I tried sushi for the first time freshman year, mm. you know, all these things. Um, and then I moved to LA in 2001 and I, I still, I was not much of a cook, but I still liked food. I, I don't know. I don't know where things really changed for me. Like just loving restaurants, et cetera. But somehow over the years in, in during college, my parents also are, they love going to restaurants. So I was exposed to a lot of things when I was younger, sort of against my will, but as mm -hmm. I got older, I was more down for it. But the, the turning point for me with food and cooking and for cookbooks, et cetera, was 2005. I was unemployed and a prior, like I, I, my going to the supermarket for me meant going to Costco with my roommate and loading up on the French bread pizza and the Kraft mac and cheese and hot pockets mm -hmm. and hot dogs. And we would, the two of us would go through all that food and over the course of two weeks or so <laughs> oh my God. and then go back to Costco and do it again. <laughs> and I was unemployed and I was like, this is not, I feel like I've got to make my dollar you know, go, go farther than, than what I'm doing here. And I was like, I got to learn how to cook pasta. So I literally turned on the food network 
And Jada De Laurentiis was doing, was on, I didn't even know who she was. She mm. just was there and she was cooking this pasta dish. And it happened to be an episode for like pasta for beginners. It was like perfect kids. Wow. The universe yeah. was watching you. Yeah. The universe, like, like, <laughs> J- like Susie Fogelson was watching from above. <laughs> and um, basically, so it was this pasta dish. So I was like, I am going to, you know, teach myself. I'm, I'm going to make this dish. And so I made the dish and that, literally took me on the path of cooking and, and that took me on the path of going to the internet to find recipes to cook them to try them i still make that jot of a recipe by the way it's very what was good it? a very simple uh orecchietti with um with breadcrumbs toasted breadcrumbs oh, like, like you just, olive oil and garlic that is exactly right in fact i don't even think it calls for garlic i think i, I that is a ben mandelker addition oh. um but it's literally you just take like about three quarters of a cup of olive oil and then you add two-thirds a cup of breadcrumbs you toast that toast that cook the you cook it all and you, the the pasta add the breadcrumbs in she calls for um prosciutto okay it's like you don't have to even cook it you can just chop it up and throw it in there i've actually found that what I, I've tried different kind of meats. I have found that it works really well with pepperoni. Wow. And, okay. Yeah. Cause you don't bring it pep- full, full circle back to the hot pocket, like <laughs> hot pocket <laughs> pasta. Yeah. There you yeah, go. It's an homage <laughs> to the French bread pizza, but yeah, I feel like people don't really think about putting pepperoni and things. I think it's so associated with pizza. Uh-huh. You just sort of people go for fancier sausage, but I was like all I had one day. And yeah. I found that if you sort of cook up the pepperoni in that olive oil before you add the breadcrumbs and then toss it all together, the sharpness and the pungency of that pepperoni is kind of amazing. And then just, you know, Parmesan and parsley. Very I feel like simple you're, and you're delicious. A culinary innovator, because it's funny. I don't think I've ever, like, I cook pasta constantly and I eat pasta constantly. And I don't think I've ever seen pepperoni in a pasta, but you're absolutely right. That makes a lot of sense. Why wouldn't you? Let's make pepperoni the new anchovy. Yes, let's do it. (laughs) Well, Ben, this is a perfect segue because, as you may know, this podcast um, is ultimately about what you had for lunch today. Mm -hmm. And so I'm now going to ask you, we'll kick off your therapy session. Um, Ben Mandelker, what did you have for lunch? Well, Adam, uh, I think technically what I had for lunch was a pearl barley kind of salad. But to to Today's one of those days where lunch is sort of on a spectrum of food. Okay. Where wherein I went to um I went to a very late breakfast at around 11. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of was like eating and I came home and sort of like ate some. I was like, I want to get like a, a ten, an actual luncheon for this podcast. Okay, okay. But it sort of was like felt like it was still part of like the breakfast, if that makes sense. Yeah. And that breakfast could have been your lunch, by the way. I mean, I don't necessarily, I'm not technical about it. Yeah. I kind of figured you would say that, but I kind of was like, let me try to get sort of two meals, but now they're kind of an amalgamation. So I will say that I, my breakfast, the breakfast portion of the lunch was <laughs> uh, a case, a breakfast quesadilla from Joey's cafe in West Hollywood. Okay. And um, my, so the lunch though was a pearl bar- barley salad that I made from Bonnie Frumpkin's cookbook, Kachka. Which is oh yeah, I love that from, book. Yeah, so this this pearl barley salad, I think it's called like perlovka. Per, I, I apologize to the Russians in the audience. <laughs> um, it's like a really simple salad uh, that you can sort of make a big batch of, and it'll last you th- through the week. And it's just like I, I like to eat it when I feel like I've had a lot of I've taken in a lot of crap into my system, mm-hmm. and um, also I just like to eat it because with the podcasting schedule that we talked about, like our, a lot of times, if I don't have a pre-made lunch ready to go, then literally the entire week falls into disaster with the eating. And so it's almost like I need to have that lunch there, Mm -hmm. something like a pearl barley salad to kind of right the ship for my, for my cooking. And what goes into the pearl barley salad? Um, so you got the pearl barley, first of all, which I'm that part. <laughs> <laughs> so it calls for you basically make it's almost like a Russian pesto. Um, it's it's supposed to be sorrel. Okay. Sorrel, 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 I think. Sorrel, I think. sorrel yeah. yeah. I never find sorrel. And so she suggests uh, spinach with a squeeze of lemon. So okay. that's what I do. Hazelnuts, although this time I actually use almonds because I couldn't find hazelnuts. Hazelnuts are oddly tricky to find sometimes and they're expensive they do have them at cookbook and echo park but they're like 15 dollars a bag so yeah you just never know when you're gonna find them and by the way pro tip for the audience sometimes hazelnuts are called filberts which i think is adorable and strange that's so Um, cute it is really cute but sometimes if you're like where are the i can't find the hazelnuts but if you see something called filberts 
Those are hazelnuts. That is a hazelnut. Okay. <laughs> hazelnuts are one of those nuts that truly transforms when you toast them, I find. Like a hundred percent. A toasted hazelnut is almost tastes like a cookie, whereas like a not toasted hazelnut just tastes kind of fine, like a little buttery, but like not anything to it. It's true. Like it, it's one of those examples where when cookbook authors, such as yourself, mm-hmm. say things like you must toast the nut, um, yeah. the hazelnut, you you should. So um, so this one I use almonds. Uh, almonds spinach with some lemon, uh, pretty much like an entire head of dill, I believe, mm-hmm. a little, a bunch, a bundle. And um, then there's, I'm just trying to think. Uh, and then you add in, I think there's some white wine vinegar. Wow. And you just basically just put it in the food processor. It becomes this like vibrant electric green, which is always exciting. Like that's one of my favorite things when you get that bright green in the food yeah. processor. You mean the spinach and the, and the nuts, but not the pearl barley. You don't put that in no, there. No, no, no. Okay, yeah, okay. The pearl just, barley is cooking at this point. So you're making a pesto with all those things you just You're said. kind of doing it. Yeah. yeah. Is but there it cheese, cheese in there? There's no cheese. It's okay. actually it's actually vegan. You can make this as a vegan recipe. Okay. Um, yeah. So uh, while the pearl barley is cooking, which goes for about, she says 30 minutes, but I always feel like it takes like 10 more because there's always a lot of liquid. Um, you then, uh, so you make this, you whir up this the sauce and you taste it and it is, oh, of course, garlic. Garlic. Of course, there's yeah. garlic. I knew I needed something. Okay. Yeah, I needed <laughs> something. I don't remember how much garlic. I don't remember if it's just a clove. I think it's just a clove because it's all raw. And it's like, when you get it right and add salt and pepper and it is like intoxicating this pesto. It, is, wow. it doesn't taste like an Italian pesto. It's just so fresh and tangy and garlicky. It is like wonderful. And you just, you just toss it with the pearl barley. And actually what the recipe calls for is you then add some chopped hazelnuts into this mixture. You also add, um, you cook up some mushrooms and you mm-hmm. put the mushrooms in there too. And also some sliced pear or, or, or uh, chopped up pear. Um, but this time I decided just to keep it just pro barley. I didn't want all the add-ins, just keep it simple. And you did that all today, right before this podcast? Like no, no, no. I made it, um, I actually made it about a week ago. Okay. And so I've just been sort of like going through it very slowly. But Grazing sort of, on it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it just takes about 45 minutes to an hour to do it. You know, you'll add a little bit of time if you decide to do the mushroom preparation, but mm-hmm. it's very simple. And it's, it just makes you feel, I feel like when I have it in the middle of the day, I feel like I'm being good to myself because I'm mm-hmm. so bad to myself with so many other meals that I have. Well, that's what was interesting. So like in terms of the lunch therapy of it all, what I latched onto was when you said you made it because of all the crap you put into your system as to undo it. And I couldn't help but draw the connection between watch what crappens yes. and putting, you know, Bravo shows into your system. <laughs> and then, I, it, and then it's a strong correlation. Yeah. And I wondered like if you you know, need to cleanse yourself after watching a bunch of housewives? Like, do you feel that way about what you're watching too? Or does it apply to like other elements of your life? Mm. Or, or, you know, I don't, I actually don't have any, I don't feel like when I watch these shows that I'm like ingesting crap necessarily. Okay. I actually am like very proud of the shows. Um, I'll, 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 of course will joke like, oh my God, the stuff that I have to watch. But uh, well, it's the I name of your podcast is, is crap is. So I'm That's not coming out too. of nowhere with this. Yeah. No, no, no. You're right. No, it's because it is it is a whole bunch of crap, right? But I but I'm not as realistically speaking, I actually love these shows more than sort of the podcast name might yeah. imply. But there is something about like spending several hours being really like kind of making catty jokes mm-hmm. about these shows. And then you go from that to then you're exhausted. And if you haven't made lunch for yourself, then you might be ordering McDonald's or you might be, there's something about like the, the process of like just watching so much TV and then going on and on about so much TV. And then you eat some McDonald's that you kind yeah. of feel like, what sort of human am I? <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I thought that was so fascinating about that idea of like feeding yourself a bunch of crap. I and mean, even in your story earlier about the hot pockets and then seeing Jada Bilorentis come out of the shadows and you know, with a shining light on her, like leading you down the path towards pasta. Mm-hmm. And then this idea of like fresh ingredients and this fresh pesto after like, you know, whatever else you might be eating. So I just, I think there's something, something in there about this dichotomy um, and not to get yes. too personal in this therapy session though, but between, okay. between like virtue and like, I guess like hedonism or whatever the other part of it is, it's like that you're, that, that these two elements are kind of within you both and both sides are battling it. A hundred percent. It is a hundred percent because I have the, I have a vision of how I would aspire to be, mm-hmm. you know, and actually, I mean, this is not to blow any smoke up your your, oh, please. your butt. I can but use like, all the self-esteem you can get. Yeah. 
No, but like I, I'm very much like I see your Instagram stories, and you're always cooking these just like these lovely things, you know. <laughs> and I know Instagram is a curated portion of all our lives, but right. you're always putting together this like effortless pasta of some sort. <laughs> you just gone to the farmers market, and I said, and it's actually kind of like a lifestyle that I aspire to, and I do, and I do take part of that. I go to the farmers market mm-hmm. and I do cook a lot and everything. But when I see it in other people, it's like, I don't know. I, I feel like I'm like, yes, it's like, I, I like, there's something about that lifestyle that I really, really enjoy. Cause I mm-hmm. feel like it's a lifestyle of, of, of treating yourself properly and sort of of, of luxury and refinement, which um, why I want those things, I'm not sure, uh-huh. but, um, uh, but I, so for instance, I will often have like just a loaf of bread from Tartine around, you yeah, know, or, or that's luxury will, and refinement. To that's me. extreme luxury. Right. Yeah. Um, and I will, cause I have a Tartine that's right close to me. And mm-hmm. so I will often order like an avocado toast, like once a week. And some, I, I think that eating food is sometimes more than just how it tastes. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's, it's the, it's the experience it gives you and, and makes you yeah. feel, and I love a McDonald's experience. I feel like, especially at those times when you need a McDonald's and you get a McDonald's, it is glorious and wonderful, mm-hmm. but like, um, I don't know, maybe in this year, especially where we've just been kind of cloistered away in our homes, um, to have, to have something that feels a little bit more worldly mm-hmm. or, more cosmopolitan or uh, pretentious. I don't know. You could call it whatever you want. It somehow takes you out of trans transports you out of the, the confines of where you are. Well, perhaps. there's something aspirational in that, which also makes me think of housewives because there's like yes. aspirational, like you're watching these people on like boats in the Hamptons and going all around the world. And it's sort of, but then we, but the housewives reveals, and I agree with you that I actually do think it's a pretty great show, especially not to get too deep here, but I feel like it's like a mirror of like the darker parts of America altogether. Mm-hmm. Like Erica Girardi right now, like the crimes that she and Tom committed, like that speaks to like a huge part of what's wrong with our country right now. So I do actually yes. think that's important. But um, where was I going with this? Oh, but, but I think in terms of the aspiration, I think what the Housewives reveals is that behind all the glamour and the beauty is a, is a real dark, darkness that we talked about yes. earlier and that's the same with my instagram is what i'm trying to say as much as you, <laughs> as much as you see me making a salad you don't see me sobbing in the corner afterwards like saying this is all i have so you know um <laughs> no. i'm looking um, forward to that story that'll be yeah, exciting yeah uh but no i hear what you're saying i mean actually one thing that it made me think of and i'm curious to hear you talk about this was like your work ethic because we talked about you doing five episodes a week and how, and I, I, as someone who does one a week, I know that that's a lot of work and I'm sure you're doing lots of other things too. And so I, I wonder like if there's a connection between not wanting to take the time to make yourself like a luxurious lunch every day and the sense of needing to work and like that it's, it's mm. a, you're not using your time well, because I certainly struggle with that. Like for me, I have this weird Venn diagram where actually making the salad and putting it on my Instagram counts as work because it's yes. like continuing quote unquote the brand. And so mm-hmm. it's like, okay, if I'm going to write cookbooks and I'm going to do all these things, like it's not, it's not a bad idea for me to take the time to make like something beautiful and take a picture of it. But I imagine if you're doing a podcast about Bravo or whatever, whatever you're doing screenwriting or whatever, it's like probably less um, purposeful to take the time to make a meal like that. Yeah. I, um, I, I, it, it's, it's really hard to balance, you know, um, uh, making those nice meals with a rigorous schedule. And it's uh, obviously that's for anyone who's, who's working, you know, f- you know, five days a week, six days a week. I mean, I'm, we're doing five, five episodes a week, but we're still not putting in the work days that of, you know, people who are like really going to offices right. or, or reporting to places that are hours and hours. So like, don't get me wrong. I'm not being like, Oh, <laughs> oh my goodness. My, okay. my workload. But, um, but I think that for anyone who is like working heavily, I think that, yeah, I, I almost feel like there, there's some, there's a correlation between your sort of like, quote unquote, in the minds, and then you come out of it and you almost want to, you want to sort of treat yourself right. You want to have something mm-hmm. that's like lovely. And sometimes something that's like, that's delicate. Some, you, sometimes you want something hearty and, and you do want that soul, like a, something that hugs your soul. Yeah. But, um, but for me, yeah, I think it's just that I, um, yeah, when I kind of want, when I like stop podcasting, and I'm like showing out the world, I kind of want to do something that feels, I don't know, a little bit more like delicate and artful, mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah, I get that. I, I don't know. And I don't know if that's, I never really thought about if that is a, a reaction to spending so much time, you know, 
cracking jokes about reality TV. That's like, <laughs> I'm like pull back and go in another, another direction. That's like more delicate. I don't know. Now remind me, are you, are you in a relationship or are you, I am you're yes. in a relationship? Yeah, I think I knew that, but, um, cause one of the big things for me is, uh, cooking for somebody else versus mm. cooking for just myself because when Craig goes out of town I find my cooking completely changes and then I'm very yeah. likely to like do like what Jada did and like just boil up some pasta and put some bread breadcrumbs on or just like do things that are a little less involved um but when Craig is here I feel like more of a performance like okay like even for lunch today yes. like, he was like I want to I was going to make like a tomato salad. He's like, I want a panzanella. So I went out and got like a sourdough. <laughs> saw. Yeah, he's yeah. a spoiled brat. But anyway, it's like exciting to cook for someone who appreciates it. So I'm curious in your relationship, how does cooking play into that? Um, it's, it's like almost exactly as you described um, in that I love cooking for my boyfriend. I don't know why. I don't know what happiness it, it gives. It makes me so happy to see him happy when, mm -hmm. he, when he eats the food. And it's really fun. Um, like last night I made, uh, I made a pork chop and, um, I made a pork chop and a salad and a corn salad and, uh, um, just one pork chop potato. or you made two pork chops? Well, I made two pork chops, okay. well, well, pork chop for each of us. I, okay, I was going to say, that's like only one pork chop for two people. I ate nothing. I ate nothing. <laughs> I sat in the corner and I yeah. watched. Okay. Um, no, but a pork chop for each of us and, uh, roasted some potatoes and like, I, you know, I, I, I could have just like put it all onto a plate. But instead, I put each one into a beautiful bowl Aww. and it sort of looks just like nice. It's just fun. It's fun for me to have these experiences. It's like a miniature dinner party, um, but it makes me so happy when he likes the food that I make. Yeah. And when he's out of town, I find that what happens is I actually still do the I still cook. I'll also whip up a, a nice meal, maybe not always quite as nice. But then again, he there's a lot of food he's not interested in. He's not a big seafood eater. He's not a big um, he, he can't really have dairy. Okay. So I'll like lean into the fish. I'll lean mm -hmm. into the lean into the, the dairy a little bit more when he's not there. Got it. That's interesting. I, I do a lot of like spicier foods when Craig's not here. Mm, it same. Upset, it just upsets his stomach a little bit. Um, but we're getting off topic. But I'm curious, like when you grew up, did you grow up in a family where there was a lot of cooking at home or was it mostly eating out? Um. It was a, a mixture of both. My mom would cook a lot. Um, my mom would cook a lot, but we definitely went to restaurants. Like we definitely yeah. had our, we had one restaurant we went to every, I think Friday night, we had our Chinese restaurant, uh -huh. had, you know, things like that. But my mom would cook. Um, my mom's a good cook and, and she doesn't cook as much anymore, but she really, really enjoys cooking. And um, it was, it's been great because as I've gotten older, as, as I have gotten into cooking, you know, now I can you know talk about recipes with my mom and learn yeah. her recipes um, but, uh, but there was a lot of also, there was a lot of food, I think growing up, I, I feel like I understand like, man, I don't understand how parents have to cook for their kids so many nights a week, man, yeah. that is, it's like, it's, that is hard. And so now I understand why my mom, like there were a lot of nights were just like, it was peas, frozen peas and a baked <laughs> potato yeah. and fish sticks, just something you can just like get onto the table, you know? That's like Craig is like, I'm, I'm angry that my mom never roasted the broccoli because like when I roasted broccoli for him the first time, it was like a revelation and he's yeah. sort of like, I can't believe how good this tastes because my mom would buy frozen broccoli. And I was like, well, give me a break. I mean, she was working, yeah. she had three kids to raise. So yeah, that's a- that's But a also roasting, roasting broccoli and Brussels sprouts and things like that were, it just wasn't a thing you did. Right. I feel like that only started- like 10 or 15 years With ago Ina Garten, to really, yeah was it Ina who really started that oh, yeah I think so I mean I, that's wow I my most popular post on my blog of all time was called the best broccoli of your life and it was basically because I made Ina's broccoli and it went viral but I felt bad because it was her recipe but on my yeah. blog but I, I for a long time not to toot my own horn but I had the top result when you googled broccoli recipe from about wow 2009 to 2012 so those were some big years for me yeah um, I mean I I remember um <laughs> Brussels sprouts. I when did I have like my first crispy roasted Brussels sprout? I actually feel like it was around 2010 or 11. Oh yeah. Or so. Now they're I, everywhere. Yeah. Everywhere. And I, but it was at a restaurant called Cleo. Do you remember Cleo? Mm -hmm. It was like a middle Eastern, modern middle Eastern in Hollywood. And they had grilled Brussels sprout or, or roasted Brussels sprouts. And I was like, what is this amazing thing? I always thought Brussels sprouts were terrible. And 
course, now everyone has them everywhere. I mean, Brussels sprouts went from being literally the poster child for the, the terrible foods that you have as a child mm-hmm. to now the thing that everyone loves. So let's talk more about the picky eater part of your child. Yeah. Because what do you think was going on there? Do you think that was about control? Like you wanted to control what was going into your system? Because I feel like all the Freudian psychology is all about, you know, breast milk and like oral personalities <laughs> yeah. and all that stuff. But like, what do you think was going on for you during that period? I think it must have been some sort of control. I have to imagine it somehow is tied into being a closeted little gay boy. But then again, at the same time, it's not like there are a lot, a lot of children are, are picky and they're not necessarily gay. Mm-hmm. But I, I just have found through my, my own therapy that like <laughs> everything seems to come down to the fact that I was a closeted boy. Yeah. So that's, um... that's I was like my therapy too. Like my therapy sessions are always about my coming out. And to the point where like Craig, I'll tell Craig, like I had the most incredible therapy session. He's like, oh, was it about how, how you came out? I'm like, yeah, basically. Yeah. <laughs> everything, um... everything is like, I was in, everything is about me being in danger mm-hmm. and like the, the triggers of danger that I felt as a child and how they basically just manifest to like this day really but um but just like really everything everything yeah. well danger just it's danger sounds very serious but it's like something as simple as if someone posts something on instagram and that makes me annoyed the real reason why i'm annoyed is because i feel like i they i feel like i can't trust that person and if i can't trust them that's a dangerous thing for me because mm-hmm. being a closeted gay boy you have like if someone you someone you don't trust, maybe someone who may, may expose you. Like it, everything just goes down that line. Wow. Okay. That's fascinating. Yeah. So, I, mean, I, I feel um, exposed and in danger whenever Craig wants to show affection on the street. Like yeah. that's, that's where I feel the most vulnerable. Cause I feel like, Oh God, somebody's going to like beat me up or something, you know, that's, yes. that's still like a remnant from those. That's like things. actual physical danger. Yeah. Yeah. But you're talking more about psychological. Danger. I'm just like in psychological danger at all times. And so I don't know. I really don't know what was, uh, what, what psychologically was going on. Um, and I still have a little bit of the, the one thing I have never been able to rid myself of from childhood is that I have an extreme hatred for berries and stone fruit. And I, yes. And in wow. fact, it's, it's a real problem because I now I have rebranded myself as a foodie. And yet <laughs> there's an entire category that I really can't even involve myself with like well this I, is great for for today's session because i feel like we can do some deep therapy here and get you to unlock what it's about <laughs> i know i've tried let me you know you know do you know how much i want to eat strawberries and how much i want to eat blueberries and people putting peaches and things like your salad today like yeah. your, your beautiful peach panzanella i would never be able to eat that because i hate peaches okay and... let's go back but we have to go like do that thing like like you know citizen came like Okay. The sled, like we're gonna Mm -hmm. like transition, you know, cross dissolve back to your childhood. Yeah. What is your first memory of a peach or a stone fruit or a berry? I don't know. So I don't have a distinct memory of a peach. I have a memory of like a blackberry. I I seem to remember (laughs) as like a child going berry picking in the neighborhood, and I do remember a blackberry. Okay. Um, and I don't, I don't seem to remember it being a positive or negative thing, but it just was a thing. But I do remember, like, I really, I don't know when I sort of solidified my hatred of berries, but it was early on because I, I do remember being at a friend's house um, and I was served strawberry ice cream and I was mm. like, I cannot have this. I can't. And that was like first grade. Now, it makes me wonder, like, okay, like in terms of other fruits that circle the berries and circle, like, okay, mm-hmm. like you can eat a pear, you could eat I could uh, do a pear. apple. Yeah, I will tell you, this is my whole thing, because a lot of people are fascinated by this aspect yes. of my palate. And so I, I, I can tell you everything. Um, so pretty much all berries I, I hate, although I'm okay with cranberry. Cranberry's okay. okay. Um, and I'm okay with, um, what's, the, what's the, from Costco? Not Costco, uh, <laughs> Ikea. The, uh, uh, lingonberry lingonberry yeah i recently explored lingonberry okay uh, from another re- because of a recipe from another recipe from kachka okay and uh i liked lingonberry at least in that syrupy form and those are very tart berries cranberries okay yeah maybe maybe you like very tart i think so um because there's something yeah there's something about str- raspberries are my all-time least favorite like, oh my god that's absolutely one of my most favorite. Okay. everyone loves raspberries i despise it like it's, it's like a nightmare. I have a distinct memory of being in college and going to the Delta, Delta, Delta sorority. <laughs> and they had put out a spread and I bit into a nice chocolate brownie and 
found out to my horror that it was a raspberry chocolate brownie. And I was like, ah! <laughs> um, but I, you know, so, uh, so really almost all the berries are out. I'm okay with cherry, which is not a berry, but it's sort of berry adjacent. Um, I love apple, pear, banana. I actually really love mango, which is odd oh. considering I don't really like peach or nectarine or apricot. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're like breaking my brain here. But I guess like the only thing I could think is that like a, a very fragrant peach and a very fragrant like um, strawberry are almost like floral, like they give yes. off like floral notes. And maybe that's what you mm. don't like. Yeah. Well, I often think to myself, do I not like the way these things taste? Or do I not like them because I always told myself I don't like them? I think it's which is the a latter. subtlety. Yeah, yeah, no, I th- I think it's it- got to be the latter, obviously, yeah. right? Because if I if I taste strawberry, am I having a negative reaction because the actual flavor, or is it because something is triggering me? Like, oh, as a child, when I taste this flavor, I didn't like it, so th- I I've now received this trigger, and so therefore I'm going to have this emotional reaction. And intellectually, I know that's what it is. And I aspire to push through that. But every time I think, you know, this would be a good time to push through that. I also think, yeah, but I'm having such a nice meal. I don't know. Like, why why would I want to like have a strawberry experimentation right now? Well, it's funny because like I relate to that in terms of things like tripe which a lot of food writers mm-hmm. are like, oh, tripe is, I mean, Anthony Bourdain would be like, I love a good bowl of steaming tripe, you know? And mm-hmm. it's like, it's the belly and it's the intestines or whatever. And so like, you know, I went to France with Craig and we went to this restaurant that served, it was like a mixture of calamari and tripe. So mm-hmm. it was like mm-hmm. rubbery tubey things. Yes. And I remember just not being able to like, let go of whatever preconceived notions I had about what I was eating and just getting incredibly nauseous. Like I put it in my mouth. I went, wow. oh. And to your point of like how much of that was me thinking about what I was eating and just being conscious of what it was versus just genuinely not liking it. And to compare that to another thing, which Craig and I argue about all the time is roller coasters, which is mm-hmm. that I don't like roller coasters, but as a child, my mom used to freak me out about them because she would say, you don't have to go on this. Or if you go, it was like a little kid's amusement park. She's like, if you don't like it, we'll stop the ride. So of course, like you can have a home video of me. Yeah. It's like me on this little tiny little roller coaster. I'm like, stop the ride. Stop the ride. And so it's like, now we'll go to like Disney World or Disneyland. And I'm like, I'm terrified to go on like, you know, the one in California Adventure, but I see like five-year-olds going on it. So I think sometimes these things that are embedded in us in childhood are very difficult to like unlock and get over. And it's like, and, and you know, you actually know what the source is, you know, why it's happening and that you're powerless to it. And I will say I've had some, I have had some very breakthroughs. Okay. Um, First of all, I, I do have a thing where if I'm in a really fancy restaurant, you know, a, a Michelin starred restaurant and they serve me some something that has berry in it. I will, like, I I will say I will do this. I uh, there was a restaurant here in Hollywood um, that sadly closed, and it was so great called In An, and okay. it, was, it was a Japanese restaurant. And we had this amazing meal, multi-course, multi-hour meal. And at one point, they served something with some sort of peach in it, and I was like, oh, it's peach. But I said, you know what? Like, this is such an excellent restaurant that. I believe that even this thing that I hate will be good. Mm-hmm. And so I ate it and it was delicious. And I've had that mm-hmm. experience. I, I also went to a blogger thing once. It was a, it was a cocktail. It was a cocktail tasting of some sort. And all the cocktails were like berry based. And so I had, I couldn't just be there in this group of like six people and be like, oh, sorry, I can't, I can't try. I can't have that. So, and then it became a thing. Everyone knew I hated berries. So everyone was cheering me on. And I tried all these beverages and they were fine. And so I was sort of hoping with these moments that I would sort of have that, you know, those would be breakthroughs where I could start having some of these flavors. And it hasn't quite happened, but I, I feel like maybe I should just really work at it. And, and maybe maybe I'll become used to some of these things, you know? Well, it makes me think about you saying, your, 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 the stuff you talk about in therapy about trust and safety. And I thought what was so interesting about the Japanese restaurant was that you felt like you were in good hands. Ooh, like you felt like whoa, you, could, you, yes. could, you could trust the chef. Like this is a yeah. chef I can trust. And mm-hmm. it's amazing to me that because you trusted the chef, it tasted good. And that that's something, I don't know what that means. No, but- I think that's actually a really fascinating um, 
fascinating thing. I, I, I don't know what it means either, but I, I think it, it, it can't, I, I think it, I think there has to be something about that, about the sense of, of trust and security in a, in a space like that. But, you know, if I went to your place mm-hmm. and you served for dinner, a big strawberry shortcake, yeah, I would trust you. And I would, but I, yeah. I also probably wouldn't have the strawberry sh- shortcake. Oh, really? So, you, you would deny the dessert that I spent hours and hours. <laughs> That's only happened to me once in, in my like 15 years of cooking where I've had a dinner party and I made a dessert and somebody's like, I'm sorry, I don't eat dessert. And I was like, oh, see, now I actually now actually I probably wouldn't. Now that you said that, I'd be like, oh, I can't be number two now that I, I that, no, that, no, no. That. But if you had told me, I, I usually ask people to come over, like, is there anything you don't eat? And they'll they'll tell me. And it's fine. Like if you said berries, stone fruit, no problem. But this person was like on a diet and that really annoyed me. It's oh, like, that's annoying. Yeah. It's like, give me a break. Like, just eat yeah. the dessert. I cooked for hours, you know, you know where I think that there is a through line, though. Uh, you know, I talk about how being at a blogger thing and I ate it because, you know, people had their eyes on me. And I, t- I talk about how I see myself as a foodie, but there's this whole category that I, I don't, I can't really partake in. And I feel this pressure to sort of push through and teach myself how to like enjoy these flavors. And I also talk about, um, you know, watching all this reality TV and then um, wanting to do something that makes me feel more elegant and mm-hmm. elevated. And I'm, I wonder what the, the connection is between um, eating, the connection in my life between food and persona mm-hmm. and personas that I want to have and yes. how that traces back actually to being a, a closeted gay boy who is chasing a persona of acceptance. Because my whole thing is, I was the best little boy in the world persona. Uh-huh. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Oh yeah. Which I was is that that. Yeah. The golden <laughs> child. Yeah. Golden child, which is that you always want to be wonderful and great. And you want to smooth over every situation. So that way you actually become invisible. You're not mm-hmm. an outlier and no one has to yes. pay attention to you. And uh, sort of funny that having weird food um, issues would actually make you an outlier. But here talking about wanting to have this persona or that persona be mm-hmm. seen as a foodie. It's like, I, it's like somehow a desire to have a persona um, or to aspire towards something is maybe my way of, of reaching for safety. Yeah. I think that's good. Wow. If you're, you're your own lunch therapist. I don't think <laughs> you need me anywhere. That's really good. That makes a lot of sense. No, um, no I need you. I need you. <laughs> well, I mean, it makes me wonder when um, you watched Jada that first time and she inspired you to make that pasta dish how long did it take for you to start to trust yourself in the kitchen? Because I think that's a hard thing. Mm. I mean, I certainly struggled with that at the beginning because I didn't know anything about cooking. So, I mean, I would make all kinds of mistakes and doubt myself, but I'm curious for you as somebody who had safety issues or not didn't feel safe all the time, <laughs> yes. when, how did that go for you? Um, it took, a, I think it took a while. I think in some ways I still don't because I very much still rely on recipes. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, I really enjoy recipes, but if I'm in the kitchen to this day and I'm following a recipe, I, I go back and I look at the step five times in a row. Like, did I get that teaspoon? teaspoon? Mm-hmm. Wait, was it a teaspoon? It was a teaspoon, right? <laughs> teaspoon? And like, I go back and I, um, I, I rarely actually make dishes on my own with like just untethered, like here's this ingredient, here's that ingredient. And that's actually something another aspirational thing. I want to be someone who sees stuff and just wants to throw them together. And I've started to be like that. I've, I'm started to, I've started to do something like that. That's risky. And I think the reason why that's scary is because if I make something bad, that actually goes counter to being the best little boy in the world, uh-huh. right? That's, that's like that's fault. a failure. It's right. A, so this a, way, I think that's very common because then people can blame the recipe. Like, oh, this recipe just didn't work out. Yeah. It's too salty. And it's so funny because I'm working on a cookbook now and my instinct is to be like, salt it till it tastes good. And, yeah. you know, add enough honey till you like it. But I think most people just want to be told one teaspoon Specific. salt. Yeah, one tablespoon honey. So that's Yeah, and, and I'm, I've been breaking out. I think the pandemic has been good for that. Of For me, kind of just like, trusting yeah um and just and doing it or sometimes if i make a recipe a lot like the jada one i start to experiment more with it and start to play around with it because it's almost like the first time i do a recipe i want um i want to do it exactly like they say as like Mm -hmm. my control and then i go from there um so in terms of like when i started to trust myself i don't i'm trying to think probably around if, if i started cooking in 2005 um 
I, I think I started to really cook around 2008 or nine. That's when okay. I started living on my own. And then at that point, so I, at that point, 2005, I was unemployed and then I was employed again. But then in 2009 or 10, I was really, I was really unemployed <laughs> and like more so than before. Yeah. And, um, and so I started, uh, that's actually around when I started getting cookbooks because I started wanting to eat the foods at restaurants that I really shouldn't be going to those restaurants for. So I want to learn how to cook them. Mm -hmm. And I started to find that internet mm -hmm. recipes where you never knew what you got. So I started to go to the authority of a cookbook. You know, if you find a cookbook author you like, then, you know, you can just go with that rather than like this recipe from Epicurious and that one. What were the cookbooks that you gravitated to the most in that period? Barefoot Contessa, of course. Of course. Yeah. She's very reliable. She tests those things to death. She so does. Yeah. She really does. And she even says, I think that she is a recipe person too. Yeah, like she, she follows is. recipes. Um, and um, I think, so at that time, so Barefoot Contessa, I was doing that. I was using hers to this day. I still use them a lot. I also um, around then got Madder Jaffrey's, um, her, her seminal cookbook. I forget what it's called. It's like yeah. Indian cooking, something right. very basic, uh, which was great. Um, Rick Bayless, Mexican every, every day. Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed. These are all like in this mix of like 2010 to 2013. Yeah. I don't really remember, but, um, those were some of my seminal cookbooks of that time. Your friend, David Leibovitz, uh, -huh. uh the perfect scoop. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's at a lunch therapy alumni. He was on an early episode of this, right? Yes. This much. Um, yeah, it's funny. Like he wrote me an email when I started my blog in 2004, because I, I was getting some popularity and he was like, hi, my name is David and I have a blog too. And I was, you know, I was like, and I didn't, and I remember I Googled him. I was like, oh my God, he's like, <laughs> and we became friends because we were both like coming up at the same time. And now he's like, obviously like, I name dropped you to him. I, oh, you did? I went to, uh, he, he had like a talk in Pasadena a few years uh -huh. ago and I went to it and I was like, I was like, oh, I know Adam Roberts. <laughs> <laughs> wow. He was like, oh was God, like, hey. <laughs> yeah, get out of here. Um, well, that's funny. I mean, so I so was going to ask. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, in terms of like trusting myself in the kitchen, I know there was definitely a period in those first few years where if a recipe said, brown this until it's crispy, I was like, what does that mean? Like, mm -hmm. is this crispy? Is this crispy? And I had a roommate. I was constantly going to him. I was like, do you think this is crispy? Right. Do you think this is well done? There's, there's actually a lot of abstract things uh, or, or sort of like um, nebulous concepts yes. that a lot, a lot of recipes don't realize they are conveying, you know, mm -hmm. a pinch of salt could mean anything, right? right? Or, or cook it till it's, um, cook it till it's crispy and, and, or, and cooked through or something. There's certain there or golden things, brown. Yeah. Golden brown, golden brown. My nemesis is like, is this golden brown? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is this just brown? Is this light gold? Like wow, what is golden brown? Every recipe I've ever written, like keep going. <laughs> <laughs> but like I would, I was, oh, I was always very nervous about that. I do it, do it just right. Yeah. And then eventually I think around 2010 was when I just was like, yeah, yeah, that looks, that's good enough. That's fine. Right. That's Even great. if it's not like as dark as it needs to be, or it's too dark. Yeah, it's fine. Well, it's like a Malcolm Gladwell thing of like 10,000 hours. Like, I feel like, you know, that thing where he's like, you become an expert at something when you've done it for 10,000 hours mm. and, it's, and whatever that is like playing the guitar or whatever. And I think with cooking, it's like that. It's like, you, you can't know like what's good when you start it just you have to just keep doing it and doing it and screw up and mess up i mean to this day like I'll, i've like, cooked a meal where like i'll oversalt the pasta water yeah and uh and it's just like i'll serve the dinner everyone's like oh this is delicious and it's like i know that it's too salty but it's sometimes you just screw up and you now now like the next time i make pasta i'll just use a little less salt but yeah you, you have to mess up and have to just keep going and going and, and i think that's hard i think it's hard for people like like us who yeah. we are to you know golden children yeah to mess up is is a hard thing to do and actually especially back then when you know to mess up also meant you wasted ingredients and yes. no one wants to waste ingredients but especially when you're unemployed you don't want to do that um but um but yeah there's the passover this year i decided to make an impromptu meal for my boyfriend and i i made truly the worst matzo ball soup i've ever made like it like <laughs> why was it so bad that's hard to screw up it was um i i sort of made like a last minute um i didn't have any chicken stock but i had some chickeny things around so i made like okay. a last minute stock and it wasn't chickeny enough so then i thought why don't i be a little crazy and i took a little bit of chicken and i kind of pureed it in oh no i thought like no, i thought that gross. might skip well, at first it I tasted it, it actually tasted okay, 
But what happened was the protein and the gelatin in that started to slowly thicken the matzo ball soup over time. And yeah. like by the time <laughs> time to serve the soup, it was like gloppy. And I was yeah. like, it was like. <laughs> but you blended like chicken meat into the soup? Yes. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to experiment. This is I mean, where... I'm, I'm proud of you for experimenting and for trusting yourself, but maybe you shouldn't have trusted yourself. It was, much. it went all, <laughs> like it went so wrong. And then the chicken I made was, I don't know. I, I, I don't even remember. It was unremarkable. Either it was like half cooked or not cooked. Or, I don't know. Did I even make chicken? I don't know. The, the, the soup really traumatized me. <laughs> the best one I ever made, I think was just like, I, well, Ina, I mean, talk about privilege and housewivian antics. Like, do you know how many chickens she puts in her chicken broth? She puts three. Yes. Three whole <laughs> chickens to make chicken yes. stock. And then she throw, and, and I think in the recipe, she's like, discard them. Like you basically like boil three chickens <laughs> and, and throw them away. So you have a pot of broth. I mean, that's insane. Uh, the one I like to do, I think it's been a while since I've made chicken, uh, chicken stock or like chicken soup, but it's like a double soup. So you buy store-bought stock, but then you put a whole chicken in that. Mm. And then you cook that with like root vegetables and celery. Oh, and, and so it yum. gets it really, really golden and dark and you don't have to yeah. waste three chickens. Yeah. I know um, I know stock is <laughs> actually it's, it's, I do use her kind of like foundation for a stock. Like I, like yeah. I use it sort of almost like a checklist. Like, Oh yeah, I should throw in some, let's see, what does she have? She has carrots. She has parsnip. Okay. I'll throw that in. Yeah. But I don't really, I don't really follow the proportions. I just sort of throw in yeah. what I either have or what looks good. Um, and this is the growth that I have is that I do feel like I can just sort of do that and it's okay. And actually something I talk about with my, uh, with my therapist a lot, which you touched on and you use this word is authority uh-huh. and how, um, like if I don't feel like I have authority in something, I tend to shy away from it mm-hmm. until I do have the authority. Like there's some people right. who are like, I don't know what I'm doing, but I don't care. I'm just going to blaze forward. Right. But if I don't have the, if I don't feel like I've got the authority, then I, it's like, I, uh, I get, but now I do feel like I have authority with cooking. Right. And so I feel, I feel safe in just saying, ah, this will be good enough for the stock. I love that. And I think confidence makes for a great cook. I think like that is what a good, a good cook knows how they want something to taste and they make yeah. something taste that way. And I think that sounds like you, but I also share that with you that like, I don't want to put myself out there in any way, unless I know that I'm going to be good at it. So I totally, yeah. Get that. yeah. Yeah. Um, well, we're not at the end yet, but every podcast begins with what did you have for lunch, but it ends with what are you having for dinner tonight? I, well, uh, tonight I'm going out. So last night I made the pork chops. I yes. made a, I've been cooking a lot over the past five or six days. And so tonight I'm going to try Ms. Lala, which I've never been to. And, uh, oh, yeah. it's like a that? thing. So I think it started in Sherman Oaks. It's like a middle Eastern casual concept, but there's now one, um, here in Hollywood. And so I'm going to go there and I don't even know what's on the menu. Probably a falafel of some sort. You know, uh-huh. Middle Eastern food is is everywhere these days, um, in LA at least. So we're gonna see. I, I'm excited for it. Although I have to say, honestly, um, the the dinner I made last night, Adam. Let me tell you something. I have to talk to you about this because, you know, I know Allison Roman is a little bit of a controversial figure in sure. the sphere these days. Yeah, uh, I don't. I actually don't know where you stand on Allison Roman. Um, I don't know. I don't think Alison Roman knows where she stands on Alison Roman. I, mean, <laughs> <laughs> I think I don't, I don't even know anymore. I mean, I think that whole Chrissy Teigen thing was like kind of like, cause somebody is like, she's unca- Alison's uncanceled now because Chrissy Teigen is canceled. And by the mathematics of it, I mean, it's like, it's so hard to keep track of who did what to whom. I think, I think from one of my friends I spoke to, I think Alison had made a lot of enemies over the years. And yeah. part of the reason that her downfall came so swiftly had less to do with what she said, which was wrong and not great that she said that, but also to do with the fact that people were happy to see her topple. And yeah, so, that's usually what happens. So yeah. that being said, I, I think she does great work. Oh, her recipes are phenomenal. I think I, I will agree with that. Yeah, I actually think that the whole flap that happened, I think what she did was it was she just said some stupid things and it was tone deaf um, and she got called on it deservedly. So, and I actually thought that her apology was very good. I thought it was a thoughtful apology. Um, so a lot of times when I post Alison Rowe and stuff, people say, isn't she canceled? I was like, I thought that she, you know, yeah. she, she took it head on. She, fa- she got repercussions and she apologized. So she, I, my soul, my soul is good. 
She also became like wins. a she became like a, a symbol, I think, during that period. I mean, it was during the George Floyd protest. Yeah. And it was like it all happened at this yes. one moment. And she, yeah, moment. and it was like she like I think with her blonde hair and her blue eyes, there was just something about has her. This, yeah, yeah, I think she just took on a lot. But so, what were you going to say though about your dinner? So that like, being said, so I think she actually does great work, and I actually I love both of her cookbooks. I really, really do. And um, she has from her first cookbook, Dining In, she has a recipe for uh, a pork chop, which okay. is, and that's the recipe I used. And I'm telling you, Adam, this pork chop, it's just, it was like, I was moaning. I was moaning at the table. It was just so good. Where did you buy your pork chops? Because I feel like that makes a big difference if they have a lot it of does. fat in them, if they're mm-hmm. thick, if they're thin. So, uh, so the recipe actually calls for like one big pork chop that's like, an, like at least an inch and a half thick yes um so but i was at the farmer's market you know living my aspirational dreams yes, the Hollywood were. farmer's yeah. market uh-huh. <laughs> and um i there's like one of the stands there was a pork purveyor i forget their names these two yes. bros i've gone like, there it's like peels peel and, peels and peel. pods or something yeah, like that. yeah yeah i know exactly what you're talking about it's in the hollywood farmer's market right yes yeah, yeah. they're great peels so, and pods. Uh, i love them <laughs> peels and pods that's what we're gonna call them <laughs> But I was like, um, I was like, I, I'm looking for a big ass pork chop. That's like, like an inch and a half. And they're like, oh yeah, bro, we got something for you. And they gave me like, uh, two ones that were like an inch thick. And I was like, do you have anything thicker? They're like, these are pretty thick, bro. And I was like, do you have anything thicker? I was like, no, this is as thick as they get. So I was like, okay. I'm, I was like, I'm just going to get these. I don't feel like sourcing a giant pork chop. This will be fine. So I got it from there. And what I did was to compensate the reason why you want it thick as you, as you know, but in case people don't who are listening is because you're going to sear the hell out of both sides. So mm-hmm. if it's too thin, you're going to overcook it. Yeah. So what I did was I didn't take it out of the fridge until the last second. So that way I could sear it really hard and it wouldn't overcook the center. Hopefully That's smart. That's good. Yeah. That was my look. That was my innovation. That was yeah. my non like off the page innovation. Love it. And honestly, it was, it was just, I did five minutes on each side and it was just <laughs> Like it was like heaven. But what I else, what else went in it? Like was it like was it coated in anything? Was yes, it, it was. Um, I did a dry rub that I actually did the the night before. Um, which is you toast some fennel seeds uh-huh. and grind them up, and then it's like fennel seeds, brown sugar, salt, pepper. I do coriander seeds with my fennel mm, seeds in my yes. in my rubs because I really love coriander. It has like an orange flavor. Too. Coriander is great, and you know. Melissa Clark, another one of your former guests. Oh yes, of course. She, uh, her her coriander uh, chicken from her dinner cookbook is absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, absolutely. she's an incredible, incredible like recipe writer. It's hard, like when I was because I'm working on this Broadway cookbook, like, and I'm trying to come up with original recipes for all these things. But it's like if I even glance at a, at a Melissa Clark recipe, it's like I can't unthink about mm-hmm. like how she made the thing better that I'm trying to make. Like if it's like a moussaka or something, it's like, yeah. So she'll be like, add like currants to it. And I'm like, oh my God, that sounds so good with lamb. And like, but it's like, now I can't use that because she said it. But what if I pretend that I didn't know that she's, you know, it's, it's so hard to look right. at her recipes. Give her credit in the, in the, in the headline. In the, <laughs> yeah, you know, I'll give her, yeah. header. Wait, so Ben, we're almost on. So I want to ask you just because we're going to circle back now to housewives. Yes. Who do you think is the best cook of all the housewives? Hmm. Or whose house would you most yes. want to go to for dinner? Maybe it would be a better. Um, this is a good. This is a really good question. Um, because I've been asked it before, and I. Oh, I, sorry. I'm I, I t- I no, no, no. I've, I've, yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I'm just trying to remember what I've said. Or actually, I've not been asked it, but it's something I've talked about, and I just felt like I just assumed I was asked. But then I was like, no, I often can just talk without being asked anything. Um, I think Teresa Judice is probably great, and yeah. I've I've actually I've heard she's a great chef. Like her cookbooks seem a little off. Uh, but I, be- <laughs> what do you mean I, they seem off? Well, um, so, so my friend, Amy Phillips, who hosts, um, <laughs> that was so pretend. my friend, Amy yeah. Phillips, she hosts a show on, um, on, uh, Sirius XM on radio Andy. And she just came out with a cookbook. Uh, that's kind of, she and Stuart chef, Stuart O'Keefe, they came out with a cookbook. That's all kind of like Bravo themed or whatever. And so Great. I went onto her show and what they had been doing leading up to this was that they were kind of uh, road testing some recipes from housewives cookbooks. And uh, the recipe from Teresa's cookbook was like a little, like, like they had to fix it. They had to make it good. Oh. It, was not, it was not on its own. It was had not to make it nice. They had to like... make it nice. Yeah. But I think, uh, I think actually Jennifer Aiden also can probably cook. She's from Jersey. Uh, I think wait, I watched Jersey, which, oh, she, wait, Jennifer, she's Turkish. Yeah. 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 She's good. She, I think she can, 
do something. I think no one on Beverly Hills, right? Like no but one. But Harry like, Hamlin, Harry Hamlin. Okay. Oh, he actually could. Yeah, I actually believe he can cook. Do he can throw down. But in terms of like the actual housewives, I think like I'm not convinced Lisa Vanderpump. She tries. She's like, oh, it's my vegan minestrone pie, <laughs> yeah. and you're like, mm, I don't believe it, Lisa. I don't believe right. it. Right. What about Kyle? She made a lasagna recently. <laughs> Kyle, out of nowhere, Kyle has declared that she always loves to cook, and so she burned salmon on uh, on like. <laughs> like one of the first episodes of the season. And then she made this lasagna, which I would like to try, but I'm, I'm, she does not have the authority that I want. Shannon Bedore, she's pushing that salmon stuff with cream cheese. It's not, I'm not really convinced about anyone on, on Orange County being a good cook. Um, Atlanta, I think Candy. I've been to Candy's restaurant, actually. I've been to Old Lady Gang. And, is, that, is that in Atlanta? Yeah. And uh, there were some really good things on Actually, I was surprised. Um, I think Candy could probably, I think there are people on, I think some of the women on Atlanta. What about really um, throw down. Pump? Do you ever go to those restaurants here in LA? Uh, I have, I've been to Sir Pump. I've been to all, I've been to the, every single one. I've, yeah. I've been, I went to Villa Blanca, rest in peace. And it was fine. It was like, like a fine, like a, like a, a nice, a nice generic wealthy person's restaurant. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's not exciting. Name, it sounds like a candle or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Sir Sir is not great with the food. It's like very strange. Like they, they try to make it seem like it's a very swanky upscale restaurant. And then it's like enchiladas with like a huge portion with like cabbage fluttering everywhere. <laughs> um, pump. I think pump, the food is now starts to get better at pump a little bit, but I had like a, one of the worst seafood salads I ever had in my life Ugh. there. Cause it was like, it was, you know, those tiny, tiny, tiny little shrimp that like come yeah. in a frozen bag. Like, I don't even know why people, why they exist and why people. So it was like this salad and they just like dumped, like it had yeah. to be at least a cup of those tiny shrimps. <laughs> that on sounds it. awful. But here's the surprise. Tom, Tom, which is from Tom and Tom, their food is actually really good. Wait, like, who they are have Tom a, and Tom? Sorry. I don't know what that is. Tom Sandoval and Tom Schwartz. They have a bar slash restaurant in West but, Hollywood. Which which show are they from? They're from Vanderpump Rules, also. I never oh, watched Vanderpump Rules. Oh, you don't watch Rules. Vanderpump Rules. You watch no, no, no. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So Vanderpump Rules, you know, is in this space. So they're from that show and they open up a restaurant that Lisa is also a partner in. And the food, honestly, the food is legitimately good. I've like, heard that. The, Somebody told me they were going to Tom Tom. I didn't even know what that meant, but now I know. Yeah, they have like a like a buffalo cauliflower that's great. Uh, they have jicama tacos that are really good. It's so I think if you're going to eat at any of the Lisa Vanderpump Empire uh, restaurants, Tom Tom's the way to go. Awesome. Well, that's a perfect place I think to end. But Ben, this yeah. was actually very deep and profound. I feel like I know you so much better now. I hope you I feel know. good about it. <laughs> I, this was so fun. I miss you. We have to hang out. We haven't yeah. hung out in so long. We'll come over. I'll serve you peaches, raspberries. <laughs> we'll do an intervention. Uh, no, but thanks so much. And yeah, let's definitely hang out when uh, when we're back in the world. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right, then. Take care. Okay. Bye. bye.